Welcome to Essential Ethics and this podcast in our second series of Deciding with Children. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital. Deciding with Children is built on the idea of elevating the voice of the child in the medical consultation so as to engage the child in the medical experience with a view to promoting their preferences and values. This builds to developing the child as a decision maker in their healthcare, initially in partnership with their parents and clinician, and later with the sort of independence an adult might have. However, how should we apply ourselves to this task when the child has significant disability, which may impair the way they express their voice? Do we abandon them solely to the involvement and decisions of their parents, or can we do better? In this podcast, we will explore deciding with children in the context of children with disability and show that clinicians can move beyond the disability to engage all their patients in medical decision-making. To help us consider elevating the voice of the child in decision-making, for children who, at first look, may not appear to have a voice, we are joined by a good friend of the show, Dr. Juliana Antolovich from Developmental Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Juliana. Thanks, John. And to consider the ethical issues that anchor deciding with children who have a disability, we are joined by another friend of the show, Associate Professor Ros McDougall, Clinical Ethicist at the Children's Bioethics Centre, Royal Children's Hospital, and the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Ros. Thanks, John. Juliana, I think we have to start with disability, what what is it? What does it mean? This could be a long discussion and I'm going to try and focus my response. A disability is described as um, a limitation in activity secondary to an impairment in body structure and function. Now, that sounds very dry, but it is important to recognise that it arises from an impairment. Now, the consequences of that disability and how it's experienced by the child or adult is a complex interplay between the impairment and the individual, the socio-cultural environment that it's happening in. So whilst it's a simple definition, what it looks like and what the experience is is much broader. Juliana, who are the sort of patients that you see and, you know, thinking in the context of deciding with children? So again, very broad range of, of children. And, and I think the other thing that we have to recognise, there's an enormous variability across the spectrum. If I was to describe the three broad groups of uh, children that we see, we would be seeing children with physical disabilities like cerebral palsy, children with intellectual disabilities and children with autism spectrum disorders. And in fact, we see many children with a combination of those conditions. I think the other thing to recognise is we probably need to have a more nuanced approach to how we define each of those groups of children. And it does sort of touch upon an area that I 
have a bit of a bugbear about. Um, often the term developmental delay is described is used to describe children within that category. And I object to it because it's wrong, but it also takes away from the child because we're not focusing on their strengths and the things they have more challenges with. The other terminology that's often used is wheelchair-bound or non-verbal, and they're incredibly unhelpful terms if we're trying to get a sense of who the child is in front of us. So I think you might know where I might be going with my argument. Thanks, Juliana. I know we've talked about uh, things like a a different way to be a person, Mm. and and I think that really helps us think about the group of kids that you use with physical, intellectual and behavioural. And communication. And communication uh, problem. So, Rosa, we're thinking now about deciding with children. I think that Juliana has put on quite a quite a show for us in terms of this is a range of kids that we want to try and make, we want to bring into the decision-making process. So what do you think ethically underlies that or how should we be thinking I think what ethically underlies deciding with children in this kind of context is the notion of respect for persons. So the idea here, I mean, we in day-to-day language, we use respect in lots of different ways. So I might respect John as an excellent podcast host or respect <laughs> Juliana as a fabulous paediatrician, that kind of respect that's evaluative associated with a position. The respect for persons is the idea that Uh, it's a kind of respect that all people are owed, owed morally, just because they're people. Um, So regardless of their social position, their individual characteristics, their achievements, um, it's about respecting people just because they're people. Um, And I think that's a really key ethical principle in this space. It's about um, people as people who have the potential to flourish. It's not about uh, respect for autonomy, which is much more limited if we're going to uh, respect that as a particular um, capacity or characteristic. I think when you bring in respect for autonomy, we're thinking of the the four principles of, of bioethics, respect for autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and, and, and justice. And, and then when some of the academics, and I know, Roz, you are an academic. <laughs> I don't like academic as a pejorative term. <laughs> <laughs> I'll use it value neutrally then. Um, but but really, you, you know, even way back, you know, sort of the Greeks, Aristotle, Plato, and then Enlightenment with, with Kant really sort of talk about uh, autonomous uh, in a very specific way, in a way um, that that many people you think they're capable of making decisions, probably mightn't even meet their benchmarks. And I think that even children, all children, wouldn't meet any of their benchmarks for autonomy. Yeah, that's right. So if we're thinking about autonomy, I mean, Candace, the philosopher, is very focused on rationality and that as a basis for uh, moral worth. And 
that's just not really a useful idea when we're talking about children in general. And I mean, you've raised, John, is it really a super useful idea for most people? We don't make decisions in this kind of very strict, rational, Kantian type way. But I think particularly in the context of um, the kind of group of children that Juliana looks after, that thinking about flourishing and dignity and respect for persons is a more sort of ethically rich um, perspective to take. And it opens up such a space, doesn't it, to take into account for that. So, Juliana, just that first practical application. So, you know, how do you take this idea? And I'm thinking in my mind of someone who really has quite a number of challenges in front of them and then marrying that up with decision-making. Amazing. Um, so I've, I think I need to say that I am lucky to work with a group of clinicians at this hospital who for the most part do respect the person regardless of who the person is. But there are still many examples where where that's not the case. And the reason I'm starting there is the attitudinal barriers that exist particularly within doctors are significant when we are trying to bring somebody who is living with a disability into a decision-making space or indeed even into a 3D space in the clinic. And that's something that often worries me considerably. There's quite a lot of data that supports the idea that doctors particularly value cognitive function above all else. And we know there's a a very um, well-known position of the disability paradox where doctors particularly have trouble understanding how a person with a disability could be could have a good quality of life when they perceive that quality of life to be low. So if you head into a consultation with a child and family and your perception of their value and their quality is so low that that concept of flourishing can't even begin to be part of your thinking. So I think that... Uh, the first step is recognising that we carry some baggage. That means we are not going to be able to um, do the very first thing, which is acknowledge the child's presence in the room, let alone the other higher order things that you might be expecting. So, Juliane, you're actually very strongly, you're placing the doctor in that sociocultural model. When you said that at the beginning, 100%. I thought, well, because particularly with a lot of the kids that we actually mm. share the the medical is actually quite a big part of uh, yeah. of, of their life. Yes, uh, and and so we're in there. Um, so I think a, a term that you've used before is making the patient present in the consultation. Is this where you're heading? I am. I think there's a, a few things that we probably need to to recognise um, the medicalization of children with disability that they need fixing and that they're broken is not helpful, but it is important to recognise that the impairment that they have, particularly at the severe end, means they need to interface with medical care at multiple levels. Being present in the consultation, um, 
it seems very simple, but actually talking to the child who is your patient, talking to the child first. Now, that seems very obvious, but I see so often that that's not the case. And the presence of a wheelchair and the failure of the child to speak spontaneously is enough to shift the attention of the clinician right away from the child and onto the parent or carer in the room. And when that happens, you've lost a really significant opportunity. Now, whilst this is not a visual medium, I'm looking at Roz and I'm looking at John and our facial expressions are such a critical part of the way that we engage and interact. And if a clinician, doctor, doesn't stop to look and engage with the child sitting in front of them, it's a significant lost opportunity. And the next thing they must do is ask the child, and more often than not, they will tell you how they communicate best. But indeed, if they can't, there'll be somebody right beside them who will give you some really valuable clues as to how best communicate. And simply by doing that, the child is literally drawn in but you will be impressed and amazed at the response that you will get to that child because they are accustomed to not feeling like they're part of the consultation. So very simple things can make a very substantial difference. We heard about that last year in the conference, didn't we, when uh, Ollie was speaking, Ollie's Mm. uh, in, in a wheelchair. Yes. Completed year 12, tertiary studies now, and uh, just said the presence of the wheelchair meant no one talked to me. There's a disabled kid. Yeah, full uh, stop. And, of course, he is one who has the capacity to verbalise and facial expressions and it's not the same for all of the patients where it's as easy, but you can get in there and and have a go. Absolutely. There's an enormous amount to be gleaned and without doing that, you can't take the next steps. You can't imagine... Um, the life that this person has or the needs that they have or how you can make a decision that actually reflects who they are, not just who their parents describe them as being. So the other expression you used when we were warming up, Juliana, no, is understanding the life lived. Oh, yes. And obviously that's bigger than than the greeting that we've we've started with. Mm. But in fact, we're sort of taking deciding with children right back to the very basics, Mm. getting to know them, listening to them, finding out how to listen to Mm. them. But to do that, we do have to shed that coat that intrinsically often devalues a life that is different to ours. And so I think it's a very active process. I, I do think nurses are much better at doing this and I think doctors unfortunately, are particularly not good so at doing I, this. I'm guessing, Juliana, that coat is white. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, Rose, I think that there are other ways in ethical theory of thinking about some of the things that Juliana have been talking about. Uh, I mean, we started with respect for persons and how sort of analogous that might be to respect for autonomy and part of a sort of principalism approach. But there are other ethical theories like virtue ethics, which sounds like it could wear a good hat here. Yes, definitely. Just listening to you speak then, Juliana, there was lots of kind of virtue ethics light bulbs going off for me, I think. So I think part of um, 
virtue ethics. Well, virtue ethics is the idea that we can uh, understand what's right in terms of what a virtuous person would do. Um, so thinking about character traits that are conducive to flourishing and then taking them as a guide to action. So when you were speaking then about the way um, to engage with uh, young people that you care for, there was clearly a virtue of humility, of understanding that uh, where you're coming from might not be where they're coming from, um, that the way that you see the world is di uh, different to the way that others see the world and that it's not one right way. Um, also, uh, the virtue, I mean, we talked about respectfulness before and that can be seen as a virtue too. Um, but the other one that I was thinking of as you were speaking is um, reflexivity, which is an idea from social science um, and qualitative research that as a researcher, when you go in, you, you're not uh, neutral <laughs> collecting data, you're collecting data from a particular perspective. Um, and you talked about knowing your baggage or the kind of cloak metaphor. And so it seems to me potentially that reflexivity, um, being aware of your position that you're thinking from, is a virtue for a um, clinician engaging with the children in this way. I think, Ros, in a way, I said put your hat on, but it was really put your, put your coat on and Clearly, Juliana and the colleagues she works with in the Department of Developmental Medicine just sort of wear the cloak all the time. And we should also be wearing the cloak, all of clinicians. But I guess perhaps the starting point for lots is to just take that moment, that pause before the consultation begins. You may know the person coming in or may not and see the wheelchair. Mm -hmm. and think of your baggage and think of very simply the greeting, the centering, the asking the kid, the asking the carer who's there, who may be there helping translate if language is, is difficult, uh, is part of our professional virtues mm -hmm. to be able to do. And in the relatively collected and controlled environment of an outpatient clinic... Um, it's definitely achievable, but there are higher acuity areas of the hospital where it's almost even more important and very often not achieved. And it's not in those circumstances just about um, not engaging with the child. It's then taking further steps and asking questions like, are they for full recess? just because of certain physical characteristics. I could go down a very, very different pathway there, so I'll hold, but, but it is something that is relevant in all areas of the hospital and has a substantial impact on outcomes. And, and I think we've found that in some of our other podcasts about deciding with children that doing it sort of in quick time that often has to be done, for example, in the emergency department, mm -hmm. intensive care, even during a, a MET, that's not a code blue, there are opportunities to involve uh, the child and it may be that the whole process has to be concertinaed a bit, but you've got to have the hat on to be thinking mm. about it. So we brought the child in and we're trying to centre the, the consultation. We're trying to understand them. We're thinking about what sort of decisions and sometimes I guess those may be preferences rather than big mm. decisions, yeah. left hand, right hand, when would you want to come in, how does that fit with school holidays and all the sort of other things that I think still 
are characteristics of decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, technically, people might argue about that, but I think they're all part of the little things that build up to big decisions. But in the room are the parents. Ah. And the parents of children who have a disability may loom larger mm-hmm. in the lives of those kids for all sorts of very obvious reasons than kids who don't have a disability. Mm-hmm. So how do we regard them as we're sort of thinking about this moving towards decision-making? I mean, parents um, have a role as protectors. We, we expect that of all parents, protectors of children, and that is probably enhanced and exaggerated in the context of a child who is living with a disability. The other thing that often happens if we're looking at a child who has more typical development by nature of their growth and development and changing physical ability, they will distance themselves from their parents. And if we imagine a child with quadriplegic cerebral palsy who is wheelchair-reliant, some of that physical separation and independence just doesn't happen. The cross child who slams the door and leaves the house, not uncommon in my home, it it, it doesn't happen in that setting. So that need um, to continue to protect because of perceived vulnerability, because of dependence, can really interfere with that. And I think part of our role as clinicians is to help remind the parent that you are this child's doctor and try and disentangle some of the needs that the parent may have and the child may have. And whilst um, if a child has a communication disability and um, a complex augmented communication system, we do rely on the parents. Again, we've got to be checking back in with ourselves. My patient is the child, not the parent. And I've got to endeavour to swing that attention back to the child, but to remind the parents. And I will often say to the parents very plainly, remember... Peter is my patient, you're not my patient. And so trying to create that separation for them is important. Um, There is a risk if we don't do that, that we will forever infantilise that patient. And that's very different to recognising that an impairment may limit somebody. Infantilising them is something far more dangerous and deleterious. So recognising the role of the parents and acting on them is important too. So much there. It's a complicated process because Mm. we sort of started with the clinician and then often there's a dyad that comes into the room and now we're centering the child and then we're creating three people. Mm. As it should always be. Don't disagree on that one, (laughs) but it sounds like there's some ethical tensions when we do this, Ros. What do you think? I think there are ethical tensions. I think it's really tricky thinking about the different roles of the people in the room and the different obligations because the clinician has a set of obligations, but the parents also have a set of obligations too. Um, And yeah, the sort of asymmetry in the relationships that you're describing, Juliana. There's the 
that question each time is it of is this kind of an ethically appropriate asymmetry, um, which in some cases it will be, and then in others not. So it's it sounds to me like a situation where it's really individual to each child and family, and is evolving across time because presumably you're caring for these children across a long period of time. Um, so lots of ethical complexities in a kind of dynamic situation of ethical obligations. Thanks, Roz. So we've really got, I mean, I think we've really got to be thinking as we're going about the dynamism of, of, of what's happening and how when we're centering the child, we may be pushing the, the parent out, which which they may not like, but it's a good thing. I also think that when we're talking of virtue ethics, I think we have to be very generous when we think of the, the parents of these kids and the, the difficult road that they've had to face from whenever the the disability started and be sympathetic to their role as protectors. And, and I'm sure they're protecting, not just because they are, because there's experiences which tell them that they need mm. uh, need to do this. But hopefully with the respect um, that you're showing them and their child, that they'll know that the room, at least as we're setting it up, mm-hmm. uh, is, is a safe, is a safe mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. Juliana, so how do you make room for the child? with the parents hovering hard? Well, there is. I suppose there are some practical things you can do. Um, one of uh, the significant paediatricians in my life, Margaret Rao, would always spend time setting up the room so that the physical focus could be on the child. And that probably seems like kind of an old-fashioned thing to do, but it's something that I do try and think about. Where am I going to place people? And I do, regardless of the communication or cognitive ability of the child, have them in front of me. So that's a physical thing that that you can do. Um, I keep going back to the attitudes that you have. If you don't come with... I suppose, an open heart so that you can engage with the person in front of you regardless of the impairments they have. You're never going to be able, never going to, be able to achieve that. Um, and it is something that takes time and you do need to establish, I suppose, a, a setting of trust so that people can be open and engage you actually coaching the parents to make space, saying, as you were talking before, kid may not be able to storm out and slam mm. the door as much as she wants to, mm. but are you helping the parents to see they need to sort of protect from a greater distance? I, I think there's there's a spectrum. There are some situations where things are so enmeshed that it is really hard to disentangle those relationships. But there are others when where you can very actively and clearly provide guidance to remind the parents that this is an individual child who has a voice. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Ros, is centering this on deciding with children, there are always some assumptions about children and decision-making. So in law children don't have the right to decide, if you like. They don't, uh, it's not legally theirs to decide and parents uh, do. And, you know, and if you're an adult, there's the assumption that you can decide. So how do you think that sort of plays out here 
in the disability space. So for children with disabilities that we might be sort of thinking about their capacity and it's already assumed just because they're kids they don't have capacity mm. and and now there's disabled kids. Yeah, I think it's the – I think when we talk about deciding with children, we're talking about deciding in a much broader sense than just – here's a big decision that needs to be made and now we need to involve the child. And I think that that comes out particularly strongly when we think about this group of children and young people living with disabilities. It helps us to step away from that very cognitive capacity kind of focus and to think more broadly about uh, emotions and relationships and um, those uh, that kind of dependence that we all have within families. So thinking more broadly about what it means to involve a child in their care. Um, and I think maybe we can learn from this group of uh, young people and their clinicians, maybe there's important things to learn there about how we understand decision-making with children and young people more broadly. So moving away from this idea of childhood as a kind of train track to adulthood, where the main project is to become a sort of autonomous adult, but a kind of broader understanding of what it means to be a child, what's valuable about being a child. I think there's things to learn. So we're including the kids. We're sort of thinking about kids as, as now, as, as beings and becomings. I think it's a strong theme in some of the things that uh, that we talk about. I just wonder, Juliana, how the sort of medical decisions and involvement sort of might relate to how the families make other decisions or let kids make other decisions in their life about sorts of other things that aren't medical. Do you think they allowed to make decisions elsewhere but just not in the room medically perhaps or it's all a mix? Yeah, look, I think, again, there's great variability and part of um, understanding that function is is actually getting involved in a family. I think um, that protectiveness that you might see in a clinical consultation is very, very likely to exist outside of the uh, clinic room and that's often expressed um, in a number of settings. For example, uh, children and adolescents accessing respite, despite that, that, that it might be much needed. Parents may be reluctant because of that protectiveness and I often use the line that children without a disability might be going on play dates. That's respite for the child from you and so consider it. That's one thing. Certainly when we come to issues around sexuality, um, mothers will always bring up the issue of periods when a girl is eight and that's really not to do with periods, that's to do with fear. So there are a number of other settings where we can see that protectiveness um, may limit opportunities that a child has to express themselves once they're an adolescent and experience things that other children might experience. So, yes, I think it's well beyond the decision-making in the room. But you've, you've raised that and, and one of the lists of things I wanted to 
challenge you about, but you seem to be unflappable, <laughs> is <laughs> sex ed and contraception for Even kids more with disabilities. So, Even how do you in- involve them? Uh, and get an understanding of the person, the life lived, and, and get that into the decision. Well, you know, I think sexuality is not just about sex, as we all know, but it's about a sense of who you are, what you like, how you like to be perceived, and that's something that's important to everyone. And it goes back to the personhood and the flourishing. And so that's a discussion that starts infiltrating some of the consultations really early for a variety of different reasons. And it might be, um, I can think of one of my patients who likes hugging me when she comes into a consultation. And we started very early saying, so lovely that you want to hug me, but I'm not part of your inner circle. I'm not your mum, your dad or your brother. So you don't hug me. We can shake hands. So it might come up in that sort of setting. I've talked about periods. And also for boys, we talk about masturbation in my clinic right from a very early age. So there's lots of different ways that you can remind the parents of who this child is and remind them of some of the journeys that are ahead. Um, In terms of contraception, unfortunately, um, in paediatric training, a lot of people think about menstrual management as a way to avoid pregnancy, but actually it's it's much, much more than that. So again, we come back to the doctor sitting in the room, shrugging off that coat of fear and awkwardness and being able to talk about things that are actually happening in the real world. You're much better at it than I. You go where <laughs> many of us fear to tread, but do you ask them about, do they want, do you, well, you ask the, the girls, do you want to have a pill so you don't have to have periods? I mean, are you asking the kid or the parent who doesn't want to have to deal with it? Ah, so we always start at the position. It's often asked because a parent is worried to deal with it. I'm not going to say what I usually say, but then I talk about the fact, and I've I've been taught this by my gynaecology colleagues, girls have far too many periods these days compared to what they used to in the olden days. And so I do talk to young women and there are many young women who find having a menstrual period every month interferes with swimming at school, which is one of their favourite activities or doing a sport. And so, yes, it is something um, that should be discussed with the young person. All right. What about Oh, I'm feeling bad now. No, I, I think it's, you know, I mean, I think what you're telling us is really in some ways very straightforward in principle and get in there and ask and involve them. And, and well, it's don't, their, assume, don't assume don't assume that they're different. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's and it's their body and if the protector's mm-hmm. protecting them too much, try and make space for them mm-hmm. to have that, that conversation. So, But what, what about some other situations? Um, you know, I, I've heard of kids turning up to the hospital kids with significant disability, but it could happen to kids without disability, but mm. in this context, you know, without, you know, they've come to the hospital and they don't quite know what they've come for. Mm. And then all of a sudden it's a big thing. Oh, there are so many consequences of that. And I, I think, again, going back to the clinical consult, how often do we let 
somebody know what we're about to do. We assume that they know. So I'm thinking about someone coming to the hospital yes. for an operation. Yes. And so, they don't know. So that extends to that circumstance. And a parent might say, well, they'll worry unnecessarily. They'll be frightened. There's lots of reasons that are given, again, taking on that protector role. What then happens, I think, is extreme horrendous distress for that child arriving. And what I have seen happen, unfortunately, is that that distress then translates into aggressive, flailing, dangerous behaviour, and then that child gets a behavioural label. And it all stems back from perhaps a good intention by the parent to protect the child, not acknowledge that the child has need for knowledge and understanding and preparation. But then the consequences are doubly felt by the child, that not only do they have a horrible, frightening experience, but their response to that horrible, frightening experience creates its own risks and consequences and unfortunately labels. And the last thing that you want is a label of behavioural. It's it's a an unhelpful um, label that often reflects deep anxiety rather than bad behaviour. And it sounds, Ross, doesn't it, like Juliana's talking about truth-telling that's a you know prominent part of, mm-hmm. I think, some of the ethics we do and we're thinking and we're sort of building this up of the acknowledging the child as a person, acknowledging the relationship and understanding that relationship, centering them still in the consultation. But then truth-telling becomes very important, doesn't it? Yes. So I think it sounds like truth... Yeah, truth-telling sometimes sounds very black and white. Mm. (laughs) Like you tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth or you're completely, um, you know, keeping the kid in the dark. And I think that truth-telling is the sort of moral basis for truth-telling is about the interests of the child. So if we think really broadly about a child's well-being and all the different interests that make up that well-being, um, so not just their kind of medical interests but all their other interests, you know, the interests they have in being part of a family and in having control of their body and... Um, play and education and all that kind of broad set of interests, then we can see then truth-telling as um, something that uh, promotes those interests. So if we're thinking it's going to be individual for each kid about what um, approach to what kind of information at what time, from who, um, so again, uh, it's a kind of individualisation, but thinking broadly about the that set of interests and how truth-telling can best promote them overall. Because what you've described, Juliana, sounds like a horrible situation and a a mess from so many different perspectives. Mm -hmm. So we've built this up, Juliana, Mm -hmm. respect, centering the child, Mm -hmm. now truth-telling. We've got a a procedure coming up. We've got a consent form. Now, often 14, 15-year-olds will sign a consent form, usually with their parents, just to make it sort of easier in some respects. Do you sign consent forms with your patients? The sort of work that I do doesn't usually require that, but I do do some procedures and I think it is 
that process of saying, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. What do you think about that? You do have to be careful in how you present that because once you have a no, you also have to respect that no. So you do have to be careful. But but that process of involving somebody and, and again, I think Ros's point about titrating what we do to the child and the circumstances is critically important. And I worry that many children with neurodisability are just put into one basket and put aside. And that similarly titrated, nuanced approach to provide information that is appropriate to where they are developmentally, where they are cognitively, where they are, where they are communicatively. And I have to be honest that um, I can think of two uh, boys who are patients of mine who have real difficulties with their communication and I've elected to talk about a surgical procedure that we are thinking about without them in the room. Now, that might seem contrary to a lot of things that I have said, but I considered the trauma of the discussion without them being able to contribute in a way that was helpful to them would be unfair. But I have made in both of those cases a separate appointment to talk with them about some of the decisions that we are considering. So again, it has to be titrated and considered with respect to the child that's in front of you. Which is not so different from any other kid and we're not necessarily, even with the parents sharing every thought bubble, but perhaps we share a little bit more with with the parents as we're coming to the decision. And then I think you're highlighting a point that deciding with children isn't about ceding all responsibility to the child, but it's in involving them and including them. And understanding what their needs are. Yeah. yeah, that started at the beginning when we centred mm. them <laughs> in the consultation. Just another thing, what about things like seizure medication? I know you dish out that a fair bit because some of your kids have uh, seizures and then that can make you dopey. Do you do you, oh. do you include that? I mean, do you get kids tell you that and decide with you well, about medicine? Well, that's often uh, one of the things I often say, if this medication makes you sleepy, then it's the wrong medication. It's really, I, I suppose that's less of a a discussion point because my starting position, whether it is the use of a antipsychotic or an anti-seizure medication or an anti-tone and movement disorder medication, if it makes you sleepy, then I'm taking it off the table. But, but many children um, are very clear about whether they want to take a medication or not and will tell me, this makes me fuzzy in the head, I don't like it. That sort of feedback. And, and I think the point I'd like to make is that we don't expect that feedback from somebody with a neurodisability. So we might not seek it, but there's a richness there to be had if you stop and listen, that that information will come to you with with ease. <laughs> Rose. I think as well that that links really nicely with the idea of children having this range of interests and themselves as experts on their well-being. Mm-hmm. So if we're taking seriously this idea of children's diverse interests, there are some things that only they can tell us about their experience. Um, so if you're deciding with children and thinking through 
those that range of interests, then the only way that you can get some information is by centering the child and figuring out what they think. They're the expert on some of those interests. Mm. Well, Ros, we've had a wonderful conversation and Juliana too, and we're getting near the end. And I was just pondering while you were talking about whether one can be judgmental in a good way. So you, that might be a whole other, <laughs> other podcast. But I think that Juliana has been deciding with children uh, that she sees who have disabilities. What, what do you think? Oh, I think, I think what I've learned from this conversation is about that broader understanding of deciding. <laughs> That's what I've taken away, that it's that involving of children in all those aspects of their care. Um, and so, absolutely, I think it sounds like <laughs> Juliana is an exemplar of um, this this particular virtue. Thanks, Roswell. We only have exemplars on essential <laughs> ethics. Thank you, Juliana. It's a exemplar pleasure. Thank of, you. Of pediatric of pediatrics and Ros exemplar of clinical ethics. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with your colleagues. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was produced in the studio of RCH Creative Services. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the RCH Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, please visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics, be inspired. Thank you.